There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 Ranch Microfighter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Sergeant Bill Cannon, retired Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Tonight, we're going to cover the second part, sort of part two, of the Brian Koberger search warrant from his parents' home in Pennsylvania. Uh, we covered the first part of it where there was like nine items uh, that were removed that night. And this time, there's, it's even more lengthy. There's a great deal of uh, things that are removed from the warrant. Some of the things I question as to why they actually removed them. And uh, I'll have a, a, my co-host will be Mike Geary tonight, who's a, who's a lawyer. He can uh, conjecture or give his opinion more about this in a, in a better light than I can. But they took some things, and we'll go, we'll go over that, that it was a little bit uh, questionable. But one of the things that we know uh, from our experience in law enforcement, they have a ton of evidence in this case. And now I, they removed, I think, another 60-something items from his house, and specifically the vehicle. And the vehicle, no doubt, was processed at a forensic location. And now they're removing certain items from the vehicle, like the the the, uh, the, the floorboards or the, excuse me, the, 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 the board next to the driver's side, uh, all things that they're going to be able to forensically go over by themselves without, without taking removing them for the car. We mentioned it's almost ad nauseum Locard's principle of exchange. Now, Brian Koberger very likely could have brought blood, fibers, DNA, hairs, dog hairs into that vehicle. And if that's the case, this will be just a complete treasure trove of evidence of evidentiary material, you know. And that's what the whole point of processing this vehicle forensically is. And it's such powerful, powerful evidence. And that's why no time or, or cost should be spared in order to get this. Right now, I'm going to introduce my co-host this evening, straight out of the Bronx, <laughs> not Brooklyn, straight out of the Bronx, former NYPD sergeant, Professor at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut, the always affable Mike Geary. <laughs> hey, good evening, Billy. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's always a pleasure. You're a, definitely a fan favorite. People love to see you here, and they're really impressed with your library of books behind you, too, uh, Mike. <laughs> so, right. so, Mike, let's let's get right to um, let's get right to the warrant. Uh, it's you know, I'm going to put something on the screen. It was it was it was hard to um, to to find a a copy that wasn't in a video. So I'm going to put this up on the screen. And these are some of the items that they removed. And you notice item number one, it just says knife. It doesn't say like is that the knife? Probably not. I think if it was a K-bar knife, it would say prominently K-bar knife. You know, but it doesn't. It says knife. And then the second item, you know, book with underlying on page 118. But I'm not going to go over the whole thing. But you can just see how many things they actually removed. And I think there's four pages of this. 
So, and one of the, the other things that they removed, which is they removed like two laptops and I think two standalone computers. So you can imagine the amount of computer forensics that are available on this case. And it's, it's unbelievable how much work obviously will be, will have to be done on this. I think one of the uh, things people should, uh, you know, realize is that when uh, Koberger, uh, they believe, began following in maybe with, with Facebook and maybe direct messaging, uh, uh, maybe uh, one of the girls, Ms. Gonsalves, um, you know, he, he may have uh, put stuff, used his laptop. You know, he may have used maybe a laptop at the school. You know, the, uh, so there's a lot of places where the police are looking for evidence, not just his apartment, not just his car, but also at the house. He was there at the house uh, for at least 48 hours, I believe, at least maybe 96 hours before they actually swooped in and made the arrest on the early morning hours of December 30th. So even that house, uh, we talked about it before, uh, the crime, the uh, it's treated, the whole entire house is treated as not only an arrest scene, but also a possible um, crime scene because some aspect of the crime may, may evidence of an aspect of the crime may be there. He may have uh, accessed his father's laptop or maybe his mother's laptop at his Pennsylvania home, maybe to do some uh, searches about what's going on in the case. And that would be, if, if true, if they do find something like that, that may be considered you know, innocent by a defense attorney, just as like a, uh, a curious person, or could be consciousness of guilt. So, uh, Mike, I was waiting for you to say that. I was almost going to say it myself. Let's hear, that, let's hear that gearyism, consciousness of guilt. I wanted to get it in there. I wanted to get it in there. So, you know, there's, so they're looking for every possible angle to see if there's any evidence anywhere connecting him to the crime and at any, in any facet of the crime. And therefore, so many items were taken that you, you you'd be surprised. And but I think that there's a purpose for all of that. You know, they're not taking them willy nilly. There's an, an absolute reason why they're taking each and every item. Absolutely. I want to play last night. Banfield talked about this with um, uh, this this uh, Houston, Texas detective who seems to be on every channel. He seems to be very articulate and knowledgeable guy. Let me play a little bit of this right here. What are your first thoughts when you saw that list? Good to be back with you so soon, Ashley. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, it was an interesting list. And I think the evidentiary search warrant that was served on that residence, they obtained a treasure trove of evidence. And it seems to be having direct links to what we know now is some witness statements and the, the car itself pulling parts out of it instead of processing the car to another location. They just took the parts that were the most probative pieces of evidence out of the car and they will process those things separately. So yes, I, I would say uh, again, to describe it, it's a, it's a treasure trove of evidence. Okay. So Imran, a few other things on the list that I thought were interesting, multiple laptops, as well as a full computer, a leafy green substance found both in a green container and in a baggie, clear plastic gloves, a Samsung solid state drive, a Samsung phone case. Those are all the things you'd expect, right? You're gonna take the electronics. Anything else stand out to you though about the list that I rattled off? 
Yeah, well, Ashley, I think that what's really significant with this is, is sort of the contents and how prosecutors at the end of the day, I'm going to give a little perspective from what I expect the prosecution uh, to be looking at in terms of this evidence, will be uh, looking to tie it back to this crime. And again, you know, we're coming off the uh, Murdoch trial here and the, the conviction in that case, and that was a circumstantial case. And ultimately, uh, in this case, Ashley, it's going to be a circumstantial case where all these little bits and pieces, and we see this list from this search warrant being released, uh, ultimately, those bits and pieces are going to have to be linked, uh, and it's going to have to link Brian Koberger to that crime. So uh, on individual basis of the list, you know, these things, are they suspicious? Perhaps from what we know about the allegations of this crime, yes, but ultimately, it's going to be the prosecution's job at the end of the day, uh, and also, obviously, the forensic analysis of all this to link it back to Brian Koberg and ultimately this crime. Thank you for watching. Thoughts, Mike? Yeah, um, there is a tremendous uh, amount of evidence, as we know, what we think is going to be evidence in the crime and at the trial taken. They're taking uh, laptops and everything to see if there is some sort of linkage to, to the crime. But they, you know, even though they may have 50 items, 40 items, maybe only 20 or 30 of them or 15 of them or 10 of them are useful. Some may have absolutely none on them. They may go through a do forensic search of Mr. Koberger's uh, senior, Mr. Koberger senior's uh, laptop and find out there's nothing there on it whatsoever. They'll have to return that. Maybe the same thing with the uh, uh, standalone computer uh, or, or, Miss, or uh, Mrs. Koberger's computer. The leafy green substance could be marijuana. I'm not sure what the marijuana uh, laws are in Pennsylvania. That may be perfectly, uh, perfectly legal. So there is a treasure trove of stuff. Yes, it looks really promising. But in the end, you know, it's up to the judge to determine what evidence is what's going to be considered evidence, what's going to be useful, what's not going to be useful. What's going to, I'm sorry, what's going to be uh, prejudicial or overly prejudicial to uh, Brian Koberger's case. And uh, so there's a lot there. They will probably not use all of it, but it would be good to have. And we hope that out of all that of evidence that they've of, of items that they've seized, that um, most of it actually does prove valuable and could be admissible to prove guilt. We're not sure, but we'll see. You know, Mike, one of the things when we spoke about off the air was they they seized, I think, two guns. Mm -hmm. And. If that's not specifically named in the warrant and they're not legally possessed, why would they take them? Yeah, it, that, that was kind of interesting because there's no evidence whatsoever that Brian Koberger in any way, shape or form, uh, either in, in, in the course of or in furtherance of the crime or in an escape of the crime that late morning, that there was ever an allegation that where uh, uh, any sort of firearm was used to menace someone, to take a shot at somebody. It could be that the um, nine millimeter and the ammunition, uh, that the nine millimeter itself would be, may perhaps be in violation of some sort of uh, Pennsylvania state law on firearms possession. I don't know Pennsylvania law, so I'm not sure. Maybe there was no permit. You know, maybe it was purchased out of state. They brought it into state and they never got a permit for it, that sort of thing. Um, but I don't really see how it's linked to, could be li possibly linked to this crime, the, the quadruple homicide uh, right now. They'll hold on to it. And maybe later on, they'll end up giving it back to Mr. and Mrs. Koberger, whoever's the registered owner of the firearm, if it's lawfully um, 
possess. But right, you know, you know we'll every, see. everyone everyone is talking about what book is the under does he underline on page one eighteen, and all mm -hmm. they said was one one of the books was a psychology book. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, and one of them was was I think it was like the psychology of crime. That's I believe what it was called. And but I don't have the specific name of the book. I wondered why they didn't uh, list that. Uh, so you could see on this Glock 22 uh, generation of a 40 caliber serial, you know, so they, they list Smith and Wesson pocket knife. Uh, even that a pocket knife is not the knife. So right. you wonder it's not, well, I guess it, the warrant is really broad. Could so be. They can seize many, many things. Um, Cell phone, of course, the, the, yeah. so all the electronics uh, was listed in the warrant, sort of in a, in a vague way, but it, it was all listed. So, but you, you just wonder, it's, it's sort of, um, it sort of fogs up the whole thing if you're, you're collecting things that really aren't named in the warrant and aren't elements of the crime. Yeah. I think with the books, the first thing that struck me is the same thing that struck you is it's probably a book on criminology, criminal psychiatry or something like that. And he probably found it fascinating and it could be something, maybe it's a book about uh, the BTK killer or something like that. And maybe he found it fascinating. I've got plenty of books and I underline things and, and highlight them. And I, then I put the book away and 10 years later, you're like, oh, wow, it's interesting. You know, um, so I'm thinking perhaps there's a book on on some sort of uh, like, the, say, for instance, like the BTK killer. Um, and it's again, it's lawfully possessed. It's probably a, a, a well-read textbook in circulation. A defense attorney would say, you know, this can't come in as any sort of evidence because it doesn't show any sort of, uh, you know, criminal intent, consciousness of guilt. It's just a book. He's a Ph.D. student. Um, if you look at all the other PhD students at Washington State University, many of them have the exact same book and have read the exact same chapters. Um, however, it's again, it's one of the things that we talked about is they might seize, you know, 50 items and maybe really only 10 of them are really relevant or maybe five of them are really relevant. But it's, as you say, it's a very broadly written warrant that allows for a lot of material to be seized, maybe broader than we're used to seeing which is kind of interesting. And as you say, fogs it up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Schmitty, thank you for the $5 super sticker. Question, is there a reason why they are so spe specific for some things retrieved and not others? Like, number one, just says knife. Yeah. Well, we somewhat addressed that. I think that if that was the knife, if that was a K-Bar Marine Corps knife, I think they would have listed that. But it's maybe just being vague because – they don't even believe it's the knife, but it could be a knife that, you know, they don't want to, they'd rather err on the side of caution than not take it and have it be the knife that was used in the killing. Yeah, we're, you know, we're not exactly sure what kind of knife it is. We keep talking K-Bar and the press came out with this really early on and me, you, Phil, we've all used that term, but we, you're, we're using that term because of the sheath. And we believe that, there's a K-bar knife in a K-bar sheath. It could be that there is some sort of other uh, company knife that's made by some other knife company that may be of similar size and dimensions that he put into th that uh, sheath. So 
I think they don't want to say we're looking, we absolutely must find a K-bar knife, but they're looking for a knife that could fit into that K-bar sheath. That's the absolutely. only thing I think about that. I'm not sure. Oh, no, Mike, absolutely. Cause it could, you know, many knives could have sure. produced the wounds. <clears throat> That's right. That, that, you know, we haven't heard yet, of course, from, the results of the autopsy that's right. and that's probably going to happen sometime in June. Uh, you know, as more and more of the discovery material gets released to the defense. So I want to play a little bit of this here. Police are revealing more details about items taken from the home of the accused university of Idaho killer. New court documents were made public today showing a knife and Glock handgun with three empty magazines were taken from Brian Kohlberger's parents' house, along with several other items that could prove significant. We now have a final list of the items seized. We know they were after electronics and they came away with a desktop computer, a laptop, and a cell phone. They also took a lot of dark colored clothing along with a black hat, mask, and gloves. They found a green leafy substance in a couple of things, a container and a clear bag. Uh, they took a Craftsman shop vac, which may have been used to clean the car, and four cheek swabs for DNA. You know, it's funny that the uh, that green leafy substance, why don't they just say it appears to be marijuana? It's like the right. scroll. We used to say alleged controlled substance because exactly. you don't know what it is officially until it gets tested. But, That's right. Uh, it, could That's be, right. it could be marijuana, as they say, you know. A burger was arrested yeah. on December 30th at the home of his parents. <laughs> Preliminary hearing is scheduled for late June. So far, Koberger has not entered a plea. Nor nor will he enter yeah. a plea, uh, I don't believe, you know. So all of this is like, you know, when we talk about, we covered the, 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 the first part of the warrant, which had nine items on it. And Mike, you and I thought that one of the most important items, of course, was number nine. And that was the swab of the yes. inside of his cheek. And remember, that mm -hmm. occurred on December 30th. That's so... Right. That was important because the probable cause was based on the touch DNA on the knife sheath that was compared to his father's DNA. So this was important to nail it down to say, no, it's his, it's his DNA. So That's they right. took a cheek swab and that, that was so important. I, I, I saw many news reporters just glanced over that. Like it was nothing, you know? No, it's important because they, um, when they, if you, the reading the uh, corporal's, the investigator, corporal, I can't think of his last name, uh, look at his affidavit. He talked about, he took, he takes the reader through and the the reader is the judge, takes the judge through the uh, course of the investigation. And he, and um, he, uh, he gets all this information. He puts it together. And at the very last minute, you could see at the end of the uh, affidavit in support of the arrest warrant, you see the entry. There's like a one paragraph about the uh, DNA and that was huge. That broke the case wide open for uh, for the prosecution because that that really put any doubt in it would put would would put would put to rest any doubt in any judge's mind about whether you know this this they're grasping at straws. No. You got the DNA. That's a slam dunk right there. That was very important. And then to go and once you get him in person to actually get a sample from him so that you're, you will be able to compare not only his father's, perhaps his father's, you know, DNA to some touch DNA, but actually get his own DNA, compare it 
and that would be a much stronger case at trial. That that is that's fantastic. That's absolutely essential. Absolutely. You know, Mike, we keep hearing these words and I just we know we hear these words and we know these words all the time. And, you know, the evidentiary words, you know, uh, like you talk about direct evidence, mm -hmm. circumstantial evidence right. and circumstantial evidence. People always make light of it. and We don't make light of it on this show because circumstantial evidence, the definition is from which inferences are drawn. Right. So now when you get so much of it, tons of circumstantial evidence, it becomes extremely powerful. And why don't you talk about direct evidence, Mike? Yeah, direct evidence is evidence. Uh, for instance, um, if a de criminal defendant makes some sort of incriminating statements or, you know, uh, that kind of place them there at the scene because it's coming directly from the defendant themselves or a full confession where, uh, you know, that's direct evidence. Or if there's actually uh, video evidence, perhaps there's a shooting. And we see this on YouTube and stuff. You see a lot of things where that are posted. There'll be shooting um, and it takes place in front of a store or something like that or near an intersection. And there will actually be uh, the shooting itself actually there for the viewer. And you could see the person actually committing the crime. So the camera itself is like the eyewitness, you know, um, directly recording what happened. But other than those sort of situations, almost every other bit of evidence that you would gather, fingerprints, DNA evidence, footprints, like we see with the, with the shoe, the van shoe, uh, the driving around the neighborhood at like, you know, 3.55 in the morning, the cell phone turning off at like 2.40, turning back on at, say, 4 o'clock when he's entering uh, Washington State University property. Um, all of those things are considered circumstantial. They're very powerful. And all it, as you pointed out, all it requires is for a jury to make a logical inference. And they could make the logical inference that it points to guilt. And therefore, um, it is just, you know, one small smidgen less uh, convincing than direct evidence. And so anybody that derides circumstantial, a circumstantial evidence case doesn't really know doesn't really know what they're talking about and they don't really appreciate the significance and the uh, the weight that is given to circumstantial evidence absolutely and waters a very good question can the prosecution get the doctor records from when Koberger went to the doctor after the murders absolutely <clears throat> they would they would probably have to get a subpoena yes. uh, from the district attorney and then the doctor has to comply with the subpoena or else he could be in contempt of court that's a great question that's a great yeah, question excellent, yes. excellent question thank you for your question uh you know to cross-reference the um of course today the alec murdoch case where mm -hmm. you know he was sentenced today there was an article in today's new york times and and it would basically it's the opinion of this guy that knows nothing about criminal investigation and he was we love timestamps. And by what, what I mean by that is things that will give us the almost exact time when science can't give it to us. For example, time of death. Mm -hmm. Time of death is determined scientifically by many things. Temperature of the body, rigor mortis, uh, the color of the body. Feel, you know, that's and it's really an estimation. But if you can put that person talking on the phone to someone at a certain time, that right there can narrow it down. Same thing with the Alec Murdoch case. 
the most important piece of evidence in that case was him going to the kennel mm-hmm. and the, the uh, video that his son took of his, you heard his voice. That's, That's right. so narrowed down the time. It also showed that Alec lied about it in his interview for police. So all of these time, um, these timestamps, all cell phones, cell phones give you such an accurate timestamp that when the phone pings at a certain tower, I, I think that science is pretty damn accurate. This writer for the New York Times today was questioning those sciences, and I, I don't, I don't know if he knows what he's talking about. You know, yeah, these are things that have been that are re- reliable. Uh, you you use your cell phone, it immediately uh, when you you press the button. If I want to call you, it'll say one second, two second, three seconds, and you can hear the the phone ringing. And you know, we start talking, we hang up, and it'll say it'll show. I made the call to you or either or you made the call to me and it'll give the exact time this, the conversation started and the time it ended uh, with that Snapchat video that that uh, the young youngest son, Alex, uh, posted um, his son, Paul, Paul, sorry, Paul posted. Paul. Yeah, he didn't. Uh, sorry, sorry, Paul, Paul. Right. He didn't. Um, the father didn't know about it. And it's fabulous because uh, it Paul, Paul um, actually kind of really solved his own homicide because he posted it so the so the there's no way uh the father could say that that you know uh my son must have died earlier than that no he died a few minutes what they believe later because by the time the police come and they're looking at you know the rigor mortis of the body the temperatures of the body they know he probably you know and again it's an estimation it's always always a window but not only do you have a window that the ME could estimate for the time of death, but you also have on top, layered on top of that, you actually have a Snapchat video so you can narrow it down to a much further uh, time of death. And uh, lying about where you were on the night that your, ch- that your child and your wife were murdered, um, you know, that just seemed preposterous. And you could hear his voice on the snapchat that was the single most important piece of evidence i think more so than dna evidence more so than uh other witnesses testifying that electronic evidence uh slammed the lid on alex murdoch you know mike when we refer to smoking gun evidence that certainly was the smoking gun in the alec murdoch case you know and it remains to be seen what is going to be or if, if anything's going to be the smoking gun in this case. Let me play a little bit of this here. Whoops. Yeah. Let me remove this. It's uh, it, it just went to commercial, guys. Oh, so great. Uh, great. Uh, I'll uh, I'll play out the commercial and I'll start it. But you know, one of the other things that was amazing about this case, so many people thought that this was going to be there was doubt that one juror was going to was going to vote to um you know acquit. one juror yeah. well, to acquit and and the, the amazing thing about that was that that didn't that didn't happen that didn't happen one juror did not vote but and you know the other thing was we ha- we have to face was that the um the judge removed the juror the yeah. day before because of she was talking and telling things to people that he didn't think was the right thing. That could have been the juror that 
was the was the no vote was the not guilty vote yeah. would that could that right there be a cause for appeal that the judge dismissed that juror you know alex murda has uh mr harputlian i think his name is he's a high-priced lawyer uh he had the best uh you know, a defense that money could buy in South Carolina. Um, I think absolutely his defense attorney would uh, not be zealously advocating for his client if he did not make a motion to set aside the verdict, if he didn't make a motion, uh, you know, to, um, you know, uh, to for a retrial uh, because of evidentiary rulings that the judge made. Um, uh, apparently, the, um, there was a, a report that, um, the defense lost every single motion it made during the trial about the evidence. The judge overruled them, said no. And so they're, they have to do it. They, they're going to do it. I doubt they'll be successful. Appellate courts really, after they've, the trial's already gone through, you've impaneled the jury, you've gone through all this time and effort, you put on a trial, you don't get a perfect trial. You're not guaranteed a perfect trial. The judge conducted an excellent trial. It was a very fair trial. And there's no possible way um, uh, they could really, the defense could really stand up there and make a really good case that they need to have a retrial because some bit of evidence was uh, was not admissible that they wanted to bring in. And that was clearly uh, it, um, a wrong call by the judge. But definitely there's going to be defense motions, and I doubt they're going to go anywhere in this case. Not at all. No, I don't believe so. Fuzzy Doxy, uh, the juror was dismissed. Before the vote. Yeah, no, we, uh, yes. I'm sorry if I didn't say that. That's what I meant, but thank you uh, yeah. for reminding me. Uh, Olana, a jury, remember what his interview today, and he said they took, a jury member was uh, interviewed today, and he said they took a vote at the beginning into, uh, I'm not sure you, well, they, they after 25 minutes, yeah. they, they basically knew it was 12 nothing voting yeah. that he was guilty. Now, one of the things that we spoke about earlier, you know, when you talk about beyond a reasonable doubt and the defense is trying to create doubt. But I think that Alec Murdoch raised the bar of reasonableness, uh, excuse me, lowered the bar of reasonableness for the jury because he's lying everything he says. Therefore, if they're going to try to take some little thing, some little mistake that SLED made, that South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, and make a big deal out of it, and they think that we're going to vote not guilty because of a mistake that an officer made, may have made with evidence or something like that, that's not going to happen because he already forfeited all of that reasonable doubt by lying every step of the way. And I definitely think that affects a jury in that way. Yeah, I agree. If you are on a jury... And you're being asked to consider, is there a reasonable doubt after, you know, at the end of the trial, when you go into the deliberations? My personal feeling is that if you're a juror in that situation, if the defendant is a has a clean record and is otherwise an, out, an upstanding, halfway decent person, perhaps you may be inclined to say, maybe, yeah, maybe there's been some issues with the collection of evidence, the retention of evidence, the analysis of evidence. But, but, and you might give that person a little benefit of the doubt. But in this case, he had, because of his son uh, Paul's a Snapchat video, he ab and that places him there like 10 minutes before they're, they're, the two of them uh, are dead. 
he had to get up on the witness stand and he had to admit that he had lied to, to SLED for uh, over a year. He also had to admit to lying uh, and thieving and taking uh, money away from every single client he had for like 20 years. So, and then he's asking them to, the same jury, jury that he's telling them that he lied to all these people, he's admitting to all these lies, but then to say, oh, but please believe me, I'm telling the truth now. Um, well, no no juror is going to give him that benefit of the doubt. Well, that's what the prosecutor said when he was questioning him about yeah. being at the kennel. He goes, which story are you going to tell now? Which story are you going to go exactly. with now? And his his attorneys couldn't even object to it. No, it's a perfectly leading question. You know, yeah. I, I We talked about this the other day, the way the, uh, the district attorney uh, did his cross. It was totally unlike a New York... Uh, uh, prosecutor cross-examination or New York defense attorney cross-examination of a prosecution's witness. Uh, he allowed, um, uh, you know, Murdoch to ramble on. And we kind of opined that it seemed rather odd to our New York ear, but the truth is it may in a way have been very effective. It, it he, Murdoch would ramble on and he didn't really seem very coherent. He didn't seem to make much sense. And it all just seemed to be, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of agreeing with you. I don't know. And I think the jury saw through this guy. He is a congenital, absolute 100% congenital liar. If he tells you the sky's blue, you better just look up and double check. You know, they're <laughs> not giving him the benefit of the doubt. There was so much evidence against him, um, that it was illogical to even assume that two, that two people, would know exactly where Maggie and Paul were and shoot them and not raise the ire of the dogs. And in fact, um, Mr. Uh, um, Murdoch was actually on the property a little while later, a little while away. He admitted to being taking a nap and he couldn't hear shots, repeated shots being fired on his own property. That was a bridge way too far for the jury to go there. And they did the right thing. They used their common sense. What's the most logical explanation for what happened to Maggie and Paul? It's the husband. No, absolutely. And, you know, also them finding ballistics uh, shells and matching up the spent shells from wherever they shoot that gun to the to the uh, spent shells at the crime scene. Right. That, and it was it was Alec Murdoch's favorite gun that mm -hmm. was found. So. All of that stuff, again, circumstantial evidence, but pretty damn powerful circumstantial evidence. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, look, I think the prosecution had a better ballistics expert than the defense. The defense's ballistic expert was not even believable. You know, he said something that entrance wounds are larger than exit wounds. Everyone knows that's the reverse. Exactly. You know, that's even science would tell someone that doesn't know anything about ballistics that, the exit wound has to be bigger because it's pushing all that mass toward the whole exit hole and it's mm -hmm. going to blow open, you know, right. whereas the entrance is much smaller. And, and look, everyone that has ever fired a gun knows that. You learn that, of course. And you've look, we've been to hundreds of crime scenes, thousands probably with gunshot wounds. And mm -hmm. you look at lots of gunshot wounds. You see them in the hospital. You see what they look like, the entrance, and you see what the exit looks like in that that whole premise that he was trying to say that the uh, the exit wound was was should be smaller it was like whoa 
where'd this guy where'd this guy go to ballistic school you know yeah and the fact that he said that uh he was really you know uh, he more so than not he said the evidence pointed to two shooters but just think about it two shooters are going to come onto the property on onto you know a property assassinate you know uh the murder the the, the mother and the son but they're not going to bring their own guns they're going to they're going to go and find guns from the property and use them on 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 the two victims no no right that makes no sense at no, all it doesn't make, <laughs> absolutely no all. sense at all so look and that's you know when we talk about reasonable doubt you know people aren't stupid that's not reasonable to think there were two shooters that used the Murdoch's gun to kill the wife and the son and the and Alec was there, you know, like, come on. I mean, right. Yeah. But it's not a far leap to say, well, if Alex was there, he's the shooter, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we first did this case uh, over a year ago, Phil and I did it. We said day one. And of course we, we could be New York city cops who could say whatever we want. We said, he's the shooter. He did it. There's no doubt he did it. <clears throat> and, you know, people in the beginning, Oh my God. He's so upset. And, they, you know, people watch those crocodile tears and they actually believe this crap. And it's it's not true. Let me just go to quick commercial, Mike. Folks, if you like uh, real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Police off the cuff. We're all former NYPD police officers, detectives, sergeants, lieutenants, all of that stuff. And we give it from a police perspective. So if you're not subscribed to our YouTube, go on our YouTube Hit that, ring the bell, give us a thumbs up, give us that like, and subscribe to us. We also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to uh, contribute to us financially. And we have a YouTube channel membership with Canum, five different members. You see the folks in the green font. They're our biggest supporters, and we appreciate our subscribers, our fans, our friends. And uh, they've been following us for a while. And uh, Big things are expected out of this podcast in 2023. I've already brought on Mike Geary and Phil, Phil from Brooklyn, so we're going to continue to grow and get better. But uh, bring bring Mike back into the caper here. I want to, Mike. I want to play this um, <clears throat> this video here. It also it has to do with the Koberger case, of course. We, we sort of got uh, we trailed off and we're talking about the uh, Alec Murdoch case. Let me just unsealed documents reveal disagreements between the attorneys involved in the University of Idaho quadruple murder case, including allegations of leaked information. A three-page memo was unsealed earlier this week with the names of some witnesses and their attorneys redacted. It talks about a closed-door meeting held January 13th that included the prosecutors, public defender, and attorneys for some witnesses, including the attorney for victim Kaylee Gonsalves' family. Latah County Judge Megan Marshall called the meeting in response to what she was hearing and seeing in media reports on this case. Legal experts say this was a stern reminder of the gag order in place and a warning for anyone who violated it. The judge warned people who violated the order could be held in contempt and or be reported to the Idaho State Bar. In the unsealed memo, Gonsalves family attorney Shannon Gray claimed information is getting leaked from the prosecutor's office. That is, of course, in Latah County. Prosecutor Bill Thompson denied Gray's allegations. KTVB, meantime, is one of 30 news organizations opposing the Well, you could see that there's uh, 
there's some animosity here and there's no doubt there are leaks because there's leaks coming out in the press and who is that uh, investigator close to the investigation or person close to the investigation that's leaking stuff to the press because it's coming out all the time. We know we don't know specifically where it was coming coming from, but you know if it's if it's investigatory in nature, chances are it is coming from uh, from the prosecution and, and not the defense. You, you, what are your feelings on that, Mike? Yeah, it's my guess is it's probably somebody in the uh, probably not in the Moscow. Uh, PD, I'm thinking it's probably somebody in the FBI or the or the uh, Idaho State Police that would have much, uh, maybe would have a lot more information to, uh, you know, a lot more confidential information at their fingertips because they have, they've probably did a lot of the technical analysis, DNA, uh, the the cell phone technology, and all that, all that sort of stuff. So, so I'm thinking they have the deeper pockets, they have the greater amount of uh, of evidence at their fingertips and in their files. But um, yeah, there's, oh, you know, it just takes a phone call. Um, if you remember uh, the Woodward Bernstein case, remember uh, all the president's men? Yes. The mm-hmm. leaker who kept Woodward and Bernstein mm-hmm. on the right trail was work, worked for the FBI, Louis Free. And uh, they, after, you know, uh, many years later, Bob Woodward and, and Bernstein actually admitted he was the, the agent that they, the, uh, the confidential agent they called Deep Throat. Right, and no, I, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, he would just keep them going. He would always give them a little bit of evidence, and a couple of weeks later, give them a little bit more evidence, and just give them a name, give them a phone number. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing that goes on. This is not something that we we would be shocked about. But I think that the judge is like, you know what? Let's get all the parties here. Let's get uh, the attorney for the prosecution. Let's get the defense attorney. Let's get uh, any attorneys that are representing any members of the four families, get them together and just let them know uh, that she is not messing around and uh, she will hold people in contempt of court. I think it's a good thing, you know, but it's, you know, Mike, it seems like it it seems like the Gonsalves family and their attorney that they want this gag order removed. Mm -hmm. And, I don't really know why, to tell you the truth. Why does the family of one of the victims want the gag order removed? Because I think in the long run, it, it hurts the case when people leak information to the press, when the press puts things out that makes it harder and harder to get a jury pool. That's uh, right. That's not prejudicial. Um, we've spoken about that. You know, it's important. We believe it's important. Look, I'll speak for myself. I believe it's important that they hold this um, this this trial, if it, if in fact a trial happens, in and around or in near Moscow, because the community has been, you know, uh, traumatized by this case as well. We can't even compare the families of the victims here. You know, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Zaina Kunodal. The families of them, you know, it's just you can't even imagine. And we say their names because we don't want to say the Idaho Four and dehumanize the families and the pain that these families are going through. And, you know, to just pretend that, oh, they're the Idaho Four. And maybe it's easier to say that rather than saying their names. But I, we never on this channel, we never want to forget these kids and um, forget who they were and what they represented and um, that they didn't deserve this to happen to them. 
Yeah, I, I can understand the media's frustration and different news agencies wanting to fight the judge's you know, gag order. Um, however, and, and I don't know why uh, the, uh, the attorney for the Gonsalves family would fight this, um, because any information that gets leaked out to the press and gets disseminated can only help Brian Koberger. It cannot help the prosecution whatsoever. If you if it gets out to the point where there's going to be definitely a motion, you know that motion before the trial starts for what they call a change of venue and a change of venue motion is a motion by the uh, defense attorney to move the trial location from Leta County to another county where there may be less uh, prejudicial information out there that may predispose uh, a jury pool to convict. And he, uh, the, the defense is asking for a, a, a fairer trial. You don't want that to happen. You don't want that to happen at all. You want the trial to take place in the, in the, in the county and the locale where the crime occurred. And that's what it's, that's the way we do our trials here. And also, uh, if there's any sort of information leaked out about, like, say, for instance, a crime scene photo or some sort of uh, medical examiner's notes that got leaked out, this could only hurt the families because they'll be exposed to some probably some pretty graphic information about their their loved ones uh, passing. And you don't want that to happen either. And this is not a good scenario. Uh, as a media, yeah, you could be very frustrated, but I think as a judge, uh, I would want to do the same thing. Definitely. Absolutely. You know, I've spoken about my frustrations on the NYPD and the NYPD under the police commissioner that I worked under for most of my, uh, Ray Kelly, I think mm-hmm. uh, 12 or 16 of the years that I was on the police department, he was the police commissioner. And Ray Kelly had a policy of transparency. In essence, he gave everything to the press because I think it was a double-edged sword. He wanted the press to be friendly to him. So to keep them friendly to him, he would give them information they probably never should have gotten. And it was frustrating to investigators when secret and important information was released to the press. And you would see it in the next day on in the front page of the New York Post, the New York Daily News, and you're like, how did they get that? And folks, just so you know, in the NYPD, whenever we have what's called an unusual occurrence, could be a homicide, you know, could be a, a rape, anything uh, that's newsworthy, um, the sergeant is required to write what's called an unusual occurrence report. And that unusual occurrence report goes downtown to what's called the Deputy Commissioner of Public Information, who disseminates information that they want to get out to the press, to the press. Also in the Detective Bureau, if it gets to be a really huge matter, the Detective Bureau themselves will write a Detective Bureau unusual. And again, the press under Ray Kelly would get these reports. And a lot of times I would write some of these reports or write, uh, they would used to call them um, preliminary investigative worksheet, which could be an eight or 10 page report. The press started getting that too. So you would see what you wrote in the preliminary investigative report 
in the paper the next day, word for word. It's like, oh, I'm not getting paid to write this article. They would take that from, and so it was very frustrating. And so I don't think all departments have that policy. I don't know if the NYPD has that policy now under Ki Chan Sewell. She may not have that, that policy, but under Ray Kelly, the transparency policy was definitely in effect. Yeah, I think is is that those are the reports we used to put in the pink envelopes, right? Do you remember those yes. pink envelopes? Yeah, the pink yeah. envelopes. They were like special delivery envelopes, and we used to have to put them in department mail. Well, well Mike, that was that was before that other antiquated system called fax machines, which you know, you know. So when I hear someone say they're still using a fax machine, I was like, oh, you know. That was when Teddy Roosevelt was police commissioner. You know, we had fax machines. I can believe it. And but, fax yeah. machines were totally unreliable, too. You know? Oh, yeah. You think you yeah. sent it through and you'd be like, we never got it. You're like, oh, my God. How many yeah. times do I have to oh, send yeah. this thing through, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. But the, one of the problems is when you type up a preliminary report, it's a preliminary report. It might be done within, say, as like I'm a sergeant and there's like a shooting or something like double homicide or there's a, a discharge by a member of one of my squad while I'm uh, the patrol sergeant. I'm making up a report. It's going to the borough. Um, it's going to take me a bunch of hours. And, you know, I've got cops at the hospital. I've got cops over here. I've got cops at the crime scene. I've got this. I've got that. I'm at the station house banging out a report. It's preliminary. You know, this, you know, you're going to be doing much more investigation. You know, the investigation doesn't stop. And then 48 hours later, you've got a, a whole different set of circumstances than what you started out with that you originally wrote. And the public doesn't realize that. They think that's the finished product. And so therefore, uh, if anything changes or there's uh, a different story that comes out later on, they're wondering where they're doubting about the veracity of your original report. And they don't understand. The, what a preliminary report is, is to notify the department. It's not the final report. And it's confusing. Right. Well, investigation always changes. Corey Zortman, if blood DNA is found, is blood at crime scene or the victims found in car, apartment, etc., he is done for regardless. Corey, I happen to agree with you. We've said that numerous times on this show. If his blood DNA is in that crime scene, I think it's all over but the countin'. Mark Tinsley, uh, yo diggity dog. I like I like that name. Mark Tinsley did a great job just little by little showing what the motive is. That and realizing Alec is very deceitful with how he was able to lie without remorse. You know, absolutely. You know, we spoke about it on, we, this is my second show today. I did an earlier show with Phil Grimaldi. And if Alec Murdoch stole between 8 and $12 million, where is that money? Could he have blown through all that money because he was, uh, you know, a prescription drug addict? Could he have blown through eight to twelve million dollars? I find that somewhat hard to believe. You know, Mike, what do you think? You know, he probably blew through a good chunk of it, went into went into pills. But it could be also that he spent lavishly. Maybe he did some gambling on the side. Maybe he had a girlfriend on the side. Maybe he had a little uh, place hidden away. Um, they had the family had a lot of property, uh, and for that area, it was very expensive property. And so, the it the money was going to a lot of different, you know, uh, hobbies or recreational uses. And so, I think that uh, it's a lot of it is probably gone, unfortunately. And the people who are left uh, behind, who were who were stolen from, they're going to be left to try and force a sale of all of the family's assets. 
and then, you know, trying to get some part of their money. Maybe they'll get 10 cents on the dollar, meaning if he stole a million dollars from them, they might be lucky to get 100,000 out of it because there's going to be so many people lining up to get money. But yeah, it, it went, it probably went everywhere, including, including pills. Well, you know, Gloria Satterfield, who was the uh, Alec Murdoch's housekeeper. Um, Four million. Yeah, she was, and th this is an, also an amazing story of who the Murdochs are, that they could get away with this. He hired his friend who was an attorney to sue him, to sue his insurance policy, mm -hmm. I guess his homeowner's policy, yes. because allegedly Gloria Satterfield fell down the stairs. And the story that Alec Murdoch told with that was that she tripped on one of the dogs. And people still believe there was some fugaziness in that, too, that someone may have pushed it down the stairs. But the $4 million that was awarded in that lawsuit, Alec Murdoch stole it from her sons. So it's incredible. A, two parts of that incredible, that his friend sues him and, you know, he's going to cooperate because he's going to steal that money from his homeowner's insurance. But how did an insurance company not see through that some way? And the answer to that is the power of the Murdoch family in that part of South Carolina. Billy, they ruled like a um, crime family. They were a crime family. And uh, the insurance company sent the check to um, a, an account that, that he set up. And then he told the family, yeah, I haven't, we haven't settled the case yet. We haven't settled the case yet. We haven't settled the case yet. Because uh, all attorneys, I know in New York State, I'm sure it's the same way in every other state, you have to have a special like escrow account. They call it an IOLA account. And monies that you use, that you get in business, that you hold for clients, and then you disperse to them, um, that goes into that account. And 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 uh, you know you're on your your it's the honor system that you you don't touch that money. That's for your clients. So he got he gets the money. He doesn't pass it on to the Satterfield Satterfield I think their name is. Oh, they was Gloria. Um, yes, Gloria Satterfield. Yeah, and he tells them, oh yeah, well, it'll be, it'll take a while. It'll be like another six months before we get the the money. Don't you worry about that. And he just kept putting them off and he just took everything from that family. Every, and these, this family was a poor family. Their mom is working uh, as a nanny and a maid and for, this, for uh, the Murdoch family. She's not a wealthy woman. No. And he stole. He just took Very sad. Off. You know, Mike, when we go over the whole totality, it's not even the whole totality of circumstances, just what we know. 2015, Stephen Smith is killed close to um, the Murdoch um, hunting area, Moselle, about a mile away from it, I think, in a hit and run. There's also an implication that the Murdochs were involved in that. 2018, I believe it is, Gloria Satterfield falls down the stairs or is kicked down the stairs or trips on the dogs, whatever you want to believe. She dies as, in, uh, as a result of that accident. 2019, Paul Murdoch is driving a boat, totally intoxicated with four or five of his friends on the boat. Uh, he hits a bridge abutment. They all wind up in the water. And uh, Mallory Beach, That's right. her body is missing for five days, and they find her body. She's dead. So there was a huge lawsuit against the Murdoch family for that, based on Paul Murdoch, who was clearly intoxicated 
he's caught on video. He's, he was drinking all day, and then he's caught on video going into a bar and having one more for the you know, nightcap. While all the people that were on the boat were begging him, don't drink anymore. Don't It's nighttime. Driving a boat at night is, if you haven't been out on the water at night, you don't know the meaning of darkness until you go out on the water at night. And he hit that bridge, and sure enough, one of his friends was thrown overboard and died, you know, uh, Mallory Beach. And that was a huge lawsuit against the Murdoch family. Alec Murdoch went to the hospital that night and tried to talk to all the witnesses not to tell the police anything. I mean, this is who we're dealing with. You know, and he used his his badge he carried around with him. It was an honorary badge he got from the police. I guess he yeah. used to carry it in his uh, district attorney, assistant district attorney days. So he was definitely used the power. And then, of course, 2021, if you, well, you believe the verdict now, he shoots and kills Maggie Murdoch and his son Paul. So that's 2021. And then there's the other incident where he hires, hires a second cousin to shoot him uh, so that he could uh, turn over his life insurance policy to his son, Buster. And that was a total fiasco. So these are only five, I think, different incidents that we know of. And you can imagine within the law practice how many um, – how many things happened with, with the law firm? Someone asked Nancy Jennings, thanks for the $5 um, super sticker. Will Buster inherit Moselle property? How did this work? Well, there's so many liens and so many lawsuits against them. That's probably doubtful. Mike, why don't you speak to that since you are the attorney? Okay. I, Buster has a whole heck of a, a boatload of problems on his own. He's, he was uh, uh, thrown out of law school for cheating. Uh, apparently he's been cleared to come back to uh, law school. There's no uh, thought right now that he's going to go back. He's living 200 miles away um, from that Hamilton uh, County. Um, he's part of the lawsuit by the uh, families who uh, lost loved ones. I'm sorry, Mallory Beach's family in the uh, 2018 case with the, um, with the, the boat, boat, the boat, with the boat because uh Buster uh, loaned um, Alec his uh, ID card. So Alec got to buy alcohol underage while he was intoxicated with Buster's card. So therefore, Buster now becomes uh, part of that lawsuit against the Murdoch family. Um, the fact that Buster does not live in any of those homes and he was now never uh you know the owner is he's his son he's not he's not the mother or father he's not the mortgage uh payer you know he doesn't have any uh legal interest in those homes he probably could not stop a foreclosure of their those homes he could try but because he's moved out he's gone he's an adult he's on his own he never owned those homes uh those homes may be seized and probably foreclosed on uh, if you get a judgment, the sheriff, they'd have to get a judgment in a court. Uh, and then there'd be a failure to pay. Uh, then they'd have to move to seize the property. The properties would be sold at auction and the proceeds would be gathered and put uh, in one account. And some attorney would be would be uh, uh, put in charge of actually lining up all the creditors and making some sort of, you know, offer to them for for whatever they uh want say 10 cents on the dollar 15 cents on the dollar who knows but uh i can't see buster being successful trying to stop the liquidation of the the family's entire assets 
Amazing. Mary Michael, uh, Alec Murdoch is just so sick and twisted. He has really left quite a trail of destruction behind. Yes. What he did to his own family is just the tip of the iceberg. Alec Murdoch is pure evil. We're hearing that, you know, and the, when you look, look, everyone's probably watching the Netflix documentary on the Murdochs. And I mean, I, I guarantee there's going to be more than a Netflix documentary. This is going to be, this be a series, you know, it's, it goes in hand in hand with, you can't believe like truth is always way stranger than fiction because a writer couldn't make this up. You couldn't even make this stuff up. Unbelievable. Yeah, they're, uh, they are, they were and continue to be just um, a series of terrible events that starting with Alex, uh, I'm sorry, Alec Murdoch, the, the father, he had it all. He was born into the, fa the family that his, uh, the, in the position, the prestige and the money that his grandfather had starting back in the, in the early 1900s. And he had his son, he was hoping Buster would continue on. And in a matter of, uh, of 15 or 10 years, especially in the last, like, say, six years or five years, that you could see all these things have actually come to fruition or come to the, the uh, light of the public. Um, we don't even know what else had happened, but in the last decade or so, he's destroyed a hundred years worth of that family empire. Not to say that that's a bad thing. Um, no family should have that much uh, hold on a county, and uh, they were they were in in essence something of a uh, of an organized crime family. Absolutely, uh, folks. For those that someone asked in the chat, what was his sentence? He got. Two consecutive um, 30 years to life, uh, 30 years, to, well, 30 years to life term. So that's 60 to life. He's he's in his 50s, I'd imagine his late 50s. So he's going to die in prison. And he also has 99 cases of financial fraud that he now has to face under the same judge that sentenced him in the double murder. So I don't think Alec Murdoch is going to get out of prison anytime soon. I don't care how many appeals his attorneys do. Uh, this, this case is going to stand, I believe. Mike, final thoughts. Final thoughts. I think everybody should be um, proud of the job that SLED did. Um, they, they did a fabulous job with, with the forensic evidence in the uh, Murdoch case. And uh, he had a very fair trial. People could say whatever they want. The, the judge was fabulous in that case. And when it comes to the Koberger case, um, the viewers should, you know, continue to be patient and, uh, the same thing, have faith that the, uh, the, uh, uh Idaho state police, the Moscow state police and the FBI have done a fabulous job. And we don't even have any of the, uh, results of the analysis yet. And, uh, when, when that comes in, when we find out about that more in, uh, June, um, that will really, I think be, you know, convince everyone that, uh, don't worry, Koberger is not getting out of prison anytime soon. I, I totally agree. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. We sort of started out with the Koberger case and segued a little bit into Alec Murdoch since folks are still uh, pretty interested in that based on the sentencing today and the trial coming to such a, a quick uh, quick decision, less than three hours that they, um, the jury voted to find him guilty. Folks, again, thanks for tuning in. Have a great night. God bless. One episode, just ain't enough.